This is Our American Stories. In just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventurers gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies, too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established. The population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River, and beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith. Is the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass. Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center. Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799 in South Central New York State to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the West. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of the Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. Here's astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Lewis and Clark want to see what's on the other side. Given a mountain, we want to climb it. We hold those venturers of the past uh, in great admiration. Then, in the spring of 1822, the 23-year-old is off on his own to the edge of Western civilization in St. Louis, Missouri. The city is the center of America's fastest-growing industry, the fur trade. Here's Barton Barber, author of Jedediah Smith, no ordinary mountain man. Jedediah's primary reason for going to St. Louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition, a word that he uses often, his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven 
by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. A skillful writer, Smith details his life in his journal. I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth and bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day an advertisement on page three catches his eye. Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the river Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley. It was almost as if his life was, was lined up for that particular moment, to be able to read that article. Next. Smith gets to William Ashley Name? as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell. Next. What do you do? A trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith. Welcome, Mr. Smith. The Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, thanks, men. Let's go. It is from these beaver trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions. As Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earn greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh, there was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people confidence. Uh, trustworthiness and boldness. He had read Lewis and Clark's journals. Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years. And you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance. You can get caught up in the, in the wonder of, of what's out there. And I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust. I want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land. And when we return more on the life of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is Our American Stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him. Confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now let's pick up where we left off with the 23-year-old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822. The Ashley Henry Expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keelboats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1,400 miles, covering some 5 to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Muscle Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses. Oh, Jay, we can't afford to lose any more horses. Because of this, Andrew Henry looks for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Arikara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd be dangerous traveling all by yourself. Here's historian Mike Moore. To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the West. He's mentally and physically tough. He's brave. He doesn't say, I cannot do that. He just says, let's go. They soon reach the Arikara Indian Village near present-day Mobridge, South Dakota. Ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, Tobacco. who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 and earned a reputation as an iron-willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many other things to trade for. Smith is left in command of the shore party, Great. positioned on the sandbar. Great. <laughs> Ashley manages to conclude a deal, trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Rickra deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Rickra plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Rickra warriors and a mere 40 Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men are dead. The Arikaras unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. Well, as Jed's leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of, of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do. 
my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing that a few words from me would discourage my men. Altogether, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the words. Erechra evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The battle me to is one of the deadliest in the history of the Western fur trade. Amen. Shall be avenged. Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north of present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Arikara. On August 9th, 1823, six weeks after the Arikara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Arikara villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Arikaras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chasteen. They didn't wait on Leavenworth and his troops. They came to fight, and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Arikara, and they got right into the thick of the action. Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Arikara are dead, and Sioux managed to kill Chief Grey Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Arikara signal they want to parlay. Erikra subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Erikras. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power. Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Arikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Arikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Kleiman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20-mile wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. 
The grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth, including man. The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food. It stood up and towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster. Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly! Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets. Men, get those horses back! Smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front and he runs up into this clearing. I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. The bear attacks. The bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws. And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws off, he just rips the scalp. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men, the American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue, more of the story of Jedediah Smith, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jedediah Smith. We want to find out what happens to him after he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear. There lay Jedediah in a bloody heap. His men are panic-stricken. There's no surgeons there. They don't know what the heck to do, and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face. You gonna sit around and watch me bleed to death? Captain, uh, what's best to do? Give me a blanket. Somebody get some water. And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me. Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his journal. Get some water. 
Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head. Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you gotta get it out now. I got no thread. I got some fine sinew. It'll have to do. You're gonna have to work on me right here. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bear near the crown of his head. So it up tight, you sew it up tight, Carmen. Yes, I don't need to bleed to death right here. <laughs> One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over, laying the parts together as nice as I could. I got it. Miraculously, the stitching job is successful, although Smith is left with a frightful scar. He grows his hair long and styles it with a distinct comb over to hide the vivid red scar missing eyebrow and displaced ear. It becomes his signature look. Just 10 days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country, 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts which sell for $6 a piece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, he organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur trade. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men, having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail to the Mexican province of California. Now, the map behind the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help. They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin. Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah Smith. They travel southwest, and by November, 
After a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reached Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jed Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a cap on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mount Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith and the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827, cheers erupt and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The, the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is, is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered, the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted, unmapped, unknown, with such ease that he traveled across the landscape. After spending a week at the rendezvous, the 28-year-old Smith heads for California again. This time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him. Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian Settlement on the Colorado River in August of 1827. Smith has met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble. His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men. And, and they respected that. They brought him pumpkins and squash. He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip. Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the eastern shore, while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind 
This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story, and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the West and back. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on the bank, and all of a sudden, these these eight or ten guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojaves. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party, and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten, and spears, knives, tomahawks, right before their eyes. They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. You can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time. I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate. They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there. Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. On one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. My two best shots, I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make a kill. As the Mojaves approach, Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojaves. That was just enough to make the Mojaves think twice about attacking. All right, hold your fire. We were released from the apprehension of immediate death. At nightfall, Smith and the survivors, many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trailblazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on earth some of them nearly 400 feet high. 
The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good. Great. While his men trade with the Indians, the Kilowatset guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the Kilowatset have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men. The Kilowatsets used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could. Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post, located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington. He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States. Smith remains in the Oregon country, trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar, James Hall. He does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve, 1829, and he really pours his heart out, and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here. And here's a chance for him to, to let loose and get personal, knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family. In August 1827, ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, fifteen men with me lost their lives by the Umpqua Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers. During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or 8,000. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington, in particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. 
Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist for the U.S. government. Yet Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830, when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, his most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of time. And by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then. And it's pretty, it's no chump change for today. However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the Santa Fe Trail. Early in 1831, Smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from St. Louis en route to Santa Fe. By late May, the caravan has moved into the dreaded Cimarron Desert. For three days, the traders push on and no water. There's no water here. I'm gonna just go look for some. You guys stay here with the men. I'll be back. Smith scouts far out of the wagons. Several miles out, he comes upon a water hole. Too late, he realizes that lying in wait at the water hole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief. They're waiting for buffalo, but Smith will do just fine. Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains. But they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about, exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, the Comanche fire and the musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, but is able to turn his horse about and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanche with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life into history at a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. 
And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story on the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions, and Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread, makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed, with blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial-grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams rolling down the side of the tank. He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. 
They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank, he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare He sits a-rockin' in his rockin' chair But now he's got a smile that he can't lose Sitting in baby's shoes From eating waxed molasses And the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long You wish you were dead 
You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak, chicken fricassee and ice cream cake. I don't need vitamins or pills at all. I even mix it with my hat of call. Honey, black strap molasses and the wheat germ bread. Makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. My nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor. I never got to sleep till after four. But since I'm eating right, I feel okay. I'm sleeping every night and hey. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal, and of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor, and thus the music? And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago, and of course, because of her move, move, the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it. I don't know, like you, you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we, when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yep. did everything in these. That, that odor sound... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, my I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, 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 so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. <laughs> anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so 
you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing that this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than 250,000 sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't even want to know um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's gross. It's gross. And and so 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 what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help, you know, diminish it. Like, he'll outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to um, to get synthetic material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as so he, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called, um, Smart wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think, a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down, and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh. So... I know, it's pretty gross. So even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's going to, it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame the this, this stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus. You can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot, something like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that- then you want to use, these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Um, and I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like the breeze can work. And I said this is going to mask the odor, um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. She puts on the rubber. I can't believe a foot closet now, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. 
that would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze. And and also, what's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, though. I can tell you that. I just, Throw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm, hope, I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did grow out of it. But, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just oh. creep, it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing is I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last a, a few weeks ago. I get into a cab and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about like body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just, you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's, it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor and as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And this, this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do.
to The Giving Tree by Plain White Tees, a song based on the famous picture book that was written by a man we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler. Poet W.H. Auden once said, There are good books which are only for adults. There are no good books, which are only for children. Children's picture books matter because they're a form of our first impression of literature and become the gateway towards our appetites for the written word and our knowledge of the world. This most distilled form of art expresses basic truths about life in such a poetic way that it assumes the form of intellectual mother's milk. The stylistic eccentricities of Marie Sendak, Dr. Seuss, and Shel Silverstein form the bedrock of our childhood lexicon. Shel's story is arguably the most eccentrically interesting among the big three. Actor-filmmaker James Franco is set to direct and star in the biopic centered on Shel Silverstein, and you're about to find out why. Born in 1930 on the northwest side of Chicago, Sheldon Allen Silverstein grew up in a second-story apartment crammed with relatives. His Jewish parents, an immigrant father from Eastern Europe and a Chicago-born mother, opened an unsuccessful bakery on the heels of the Great Depression. Though Silverstein's mother encouraged his early knack for drawing, his father made it clear that he was expected to join the floundering family business. Silverstein discovered his passion for drawing when he was five. The lonely, eccentric kid spent his K-12 years drawing, reading, and listening to the radio. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. They were his comfort and refuge from the perpetual boredom of school and his increasingly wrathful father. After a few unsuccessful attempts at college, he explained, I didn't get much attention from the girls, and I didn't learn much. Those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. But this delay in gratification would later reveal itself as a blessing in disguise. By the time I could get the girls, I already knew how to write poems and draw pictures. Thank God I was able to develop these things which I could keep before I got the goodies that were my first choice. While serving in Japan and Korea, he found an unexpected outlet as an army cartoonist. When he was discharged and unemployed, Silverstein began submitting cartoons to magazines while hawking peanuts and hot dogs to fans at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Up, 
His break came in 1956 when he visited the offices of a startup magazine for men and met its editor, himself an avid cartoonist and army veteran, Hugh Hefner. During those Playboy years, Silverstein shuttled back and forth between Chicago and downtown New York. He frequented folk clubs and began making his own music, scribbling away songs on the back of cocktail napkins and tablecloths, performing folk and jazz numbers in a low, gravelly voice. Silverstein was a prolific perfectionist. In 1964 alone, he published three children's books and one book for adults. Among them was The Giving Tree whose breakaway success caught his publisher, who had printed a measly run of 7,000 copies, by surprise. Sales of The Giving Tree doubled every year in the decade following its publication. They have since approached 10 million copies in sales worldwide. Here's Shell reading The Giving Tree. Once there was a tree, and she loved the little boy. And every day the boy would come. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the tree was happy. But then, time passes, and the boy forgets about her. But time went by. One day, the boy, now a young man, returns, asking for money. Not having any to offer him, the tree is happy to give him her apples to sell. She is likewise happy to give him her branches and later her trunk until there's nothing left of her but an old stump, which the old man, or the boy, proceeds to sit on. Come, boy. Come sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. This book has been described as one of the most divisive books in children's literature. The controversy concerns whether the relationship between the main characters, a boy and a tree, should be interpreted as positive, i.e. the tree gives the boy selfless love, or a negative, i.e. the boy and the tree have an abusive relationship. Lisa Rogak, in her biography on Silverstein, A Boy Named Shell, offered her take on The Giving Tree. Given Shell's disgust with the me-first attitude among the folk singers and other artists who were creating art as a form of self-analysis, he wrote it as a reaction to their own mushiness. Silverstein was continually asked to defend his children's picture book. It's just a relationship between two people. One gives and the other takes, he would often repeat. Every year, The Giving Tree appears on the list of top 10 children's books of all time. Silverstein said that he had never studied the poetry of others and had therefore developed his own quirky style. Shell was no coward, nor was his goal to please the most amount of people. Therefore, he was no fan of political correctness. Uh, 
there was a time now you take uh, Little Red Riding Hood, for example, the three little pigs, you know. There was a time when, I know when I read Little Red Riding Hood, she goes, you know, to the, the you know, she gets the directions from the wolf and she goes to the grandmother's house and, and uh, the wolf's already been there and he's already eaten up the grandmother, you know. And uh, now an earlier edition than this had the wolf, he eats up the grandmother, the earliest edition, and then he eats up Little Red Riding Hood too. It was a moral story, you know. I don't know what the moral was, really, but it meant something. And uh, he eats the grandmother, and then he eats Red Riding Hood. Well, by the time I was reading the story, he eats the grandmother, but he doesn't quite manage to get Red Riding Hood down completely because the woodsman comes in and kills him. Then, as I was older, I read the book again, and what they turned it into this time was that he eats the grandmother, he doesn't get to Red Riding Hood, but the woodsman comes in and chops open the, the wolf's belly and the grandmother pops out. Brand new. Well, now I think it is. He comes in, he doesn't even eat the grandmother altogether. He just scares her and she runs away. And then the hunter comes in. Well, you know, eventually, uh, you know, the hunter and the wolf and the grandmother are all going to sit around and play gin rummy. Shell wrote hundreds of poems and verses for children in best-selling collections like the fiercely imagined works where the sidewalk ends, and a light in the attic. Translated into more than 30 languages, Shell's books have sold over 30 million copies. And when we come back, more on the life of Shell Silverstein. Return to the life of Shel Silverstein. Let's pick up where we last left off. The Beatles were on the cover. The Beatles! Silverstein produced over 1,000 published songs, many of which have been used in TV shows and movies, including classics like Dr. Hook's The Cover of the Rolling Stone, which was featured in Almost Famous. Cameron Crowe's tender, semi-autobiographical film about going on tour with rock stars in the 1970s and writing about it for Rolling Stone magazine. Shell also wrote The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, which was featured in Thelma and Louise, and he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe for his song, I'm Checking Out, sung by Meryl Streep in the film Postcards from the Edge. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. The fearsome-looking, bald, bearded Jew wearing a long-flowing pirate shirt and leather jacket that Goodwill would have rejected was also adored by the country music community. Here in Topeka, the rain is a falling, the faucet is a dripping, and the kids are a ball. One of them is toddling, and one is a crawling, and one's on the way. He wrote One's on the Way and Hey Loretta, both hits for Loretta Lynn in 1971 and 1973. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell And I've got 25 minutes to go And 25 Minutes to Go, sung by Johnny Cash About a man on death row 
with each line counting down one minute closer to his execution. Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free with nine more minutes to go. But this ain't the movie, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. On February 23rd, 1969, the night before Johnny Cash was set to record his live album at San Quentin Prison, he held a party at his home. The evening ended as it usually did, with his friends trying out their latest songs. Bob Dylan sang Lay Lady Lay, Chris Christopherson sang Me and My Bobby McGee, and Shel Silverstein offered up A Boy Named Sue. Here's Johnny Cash's son, John Carter Cash. Shell brought my dad a poem named Boy Named Sue. And dad read it and he was and he laughed and he liked it. He put it in his pocket. And this was right before he went to San Quentin to record the, the live album there. He got on stage uh, for the live performance and he and basically remembered that poem in his pocket. He reached in and took it out and looked at it, turned around to the band and said, play something in A. And the band just began to play. And uh, just a little, you know, 12-bar uh, walking blues rhythm. And then Dad recited the lyric, first time he'd ever recited it live, ever. And it was recorded, and that was the big number one hit. Well, my daddy left home when I... Here's Johnny Cash singing A Boy Named Sue for the first time at San Quentin Prison. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean. My fists got hard, my wits got keen. Roamed from town to town to hide my shame. But I made me a vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky-tonks and bars and kill that man that gave me that awful name. Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July, and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a groove. At an old saloon on a street of mud, there at a table dealing stud, sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue. Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old, and I looked at him and my blood ran cold. And I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? How you gonna die? Yeah, that's what I told him. Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes, and he went down, but to my surprise, come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear. But I busted a chair right across his teeth, and we crashed through the wall and into the street, kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard. I tell you, I fought tougher men, but I really can't remember when. He kicked like a mule, and he bit like a crocodile. 
I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun to pull mine first. He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile and he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye and you you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. Said, now you just fought one hell of a fight And I know you hate me and you got the right To kill me now And I wouldn't blame you if you do But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in the eye Cause I'm the that named you Sue Yeah, what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun Called him a paw and he called me a son And I come away with a different point of view And I think about him now and then Every time I try and every time I win And if I ever have a son I think I'm gonna name him Bill or George, anything but Sue I still ain't that bad When this song came out a few months later, it hit number one on the Billboard country charts for five weeks and spent three weeks at number two on the pop charts, just behind the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Women. Shell wrote A Boy Named Sue after hearing his close friend Gene Shepard, known for the film A Christmas Story, which he narrated and co-scripted, complain about being teased for his girl's name as a kid. Oh, fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. A boy named Sue managed to become one of the most referenced country songs of all time. On April Fool's Day, 1970, Johnny Cash sang a truncated version of A Boy Named Sue with Shell on the Johnny Cash Show. A lot of your writings have meant a great deal to me and... Uh, uh, for one song in particular that she wrote has been largely responsible for a lot of the success I've had lately. Oh. She wrote A Boy Named Sue. Among well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud. Bad a table, dealing studs, well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was kind of bent, gray and old. I looked at him, my blood ran cold. I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. <laughs> Shell's voice has been compared to everything from a creaking door or a rusty gate to the yelp made by a dog whose tail had been stepped on. <laughs> he agreed with the critique, although he liked the sound of his voice. Silverstein also co-wrote The Taker with Chris Christopherson, which was recorded by Waylon Jennings. He's a helper, Neil Helper. Open the doors that she can't on her own. Shell also advised Bob Dylan on album lyrics for what turned out to be Blood on the Tracks. 
released in 1975. Silverstein also wrote plays. He even co-wrote the screenplay Things Change with legendary playwright David Mamet. On May 10, 1999, Shel Silverstein died at age 68 of a heart attack in Key West, Florida. He is buried in West Lawn Cemetery in Norridge, Illinois. From best-selling children's book author to Grammy-winning, Oscar-nominated songwriter, Shel Silverstein's unique imagination and bold brand of humor are beloved by countless adults and children all over the world. And great job as always, Greg. And what a story about a great Chicago voice and that Shel Silverstein and David Mamet worked together. Thank goodness they did. Shel Silverstein's story, in a way an American story about storytelling, here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. David Mamet's story, another great Chicago writer, is there as well. Take a listen if you can. Share the link with friends.